0: This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcasts, videos, and projects, and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Dears, looking at me and listening, I'm a little reluctant to start talking. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. Just ahead of me, about 40 yards right now, is a Sitka black-tailed deer. It's on the beach along the outer coast of Alaska on a midwinter morning, feeding on kelp that's been washed up by a recent spate of very powerful storms. This deer is one that I've been watching and very, very slowly approaching for about the past hour, allowing it to gradually get accustomed to my presence as they will. I've actually been talking to myself for quite a while to see if I can't get this animal used to hearing the strangeness of my voice, a sound that undoubtedly this deer has never heard before. It's a very nice-sized buck black deer. Quite a thick and tall rack of antlers on this deer's head. It's a little bit late in the season. I would have guessed that any of the bigger buck deer would have shed their antlers by now, but not this one. That is perhaps a reflection of the fact that it's been a very mild early part of the winter along this part of the Alaska coast. Oops deer suddenly snaps to attention the ears now up and hone toward me again there's something about deer that I find completely enthralling there are few wild animals anywhere that have the deer's mix of artfully contained physical power as I look at the musculature in this deer's shoulders and haunches combined with explosive speed and almost preternatural grace and elegance. I've also been captivated by the ways that wildness runs through deer. It's as if every cell in a deer's body is aflame with tension and alertness, as if the deer vibrates with the intensity inside its own body, as if this animal might spontaneously combust as it raises its head again, stares up toward the forest, always alert, always ready to run for cover. I'm also a deer hunter. I eat venison almost every day. Living in this relationship with deer is a founding point of my life. My body is partly made from deer. In this sense, as this deer raises its head now, when I look into that deer's eyes, in a way I'm looking into my own eyes because of that convergence of our bodies being woven together in that way of hunter and prey. This creates for me a profound sense of connection with these animals, physical and also spiritual and a deeply emotional connection. There is no animal in the world that I love so much as I love the deer. I've now walked a little bit closer to the deer. It's chewing apparently quite comfortably, but also keeping a good eye on me. I've moved past that little stream, or at least part of it. There's another little branch of it just ahead of me as it flows across this beach. I'm also fascinated by the ancient, intricate, many-dimensioned relationship that deer have with humankind. For thousands and thousands of years, deer have been the most important large game animal for native people throughout most of North America. Now, it's important to remember this. Humans have been the dominant predator on deer probably since the very first people came to North America, 15,000 to perhaps 25,000 years ago. It's possible that human hunting has actually influenced the evolution of these animals, helped to create the qualities that we love in deer, that cryptic coloration, explosive speed, elusiveness, even the wildness itself inside this animal. It's important to keep this in mind, I think, when we speak of the deer's, quote, natural predators, as if that somehow didn't include ourselves. Venison, of course, is a staple food in many Native American tribes. They'll also eat some of the internal organs, the bone marrow, the fat. And then the deer hides, very important, as a source of material for clothing, for bags, many other objects. The hooves of deer used for ceremonial rattles among many tribal people in North America, and the bones used to make tools. Now deer are still important today for Native American people all over the continent, and that includes the Tlingit and Haida people who live along the coast of southeast Alaska. Many traditional Native Americans are great deer hunters. They've developed some extraordinarily ingenious ways of stalking and hunting deer. That's based on an encyclopedic knowledge of deer behavior and ecology, accumulated over thousands and thousands of years of observation and practice among Native American hunters. Now, in traditional Native American knowledge, the nature of the deer extends into realms far beyond those recognized by modern biological science. It's as if only half of the deer's natural history is visible through the methods and the perspectives of science, and it leaves out the other half. What's that? That's the spiritual dimensions, which are equally important in Native American traditions. Deer are far more than just animals, far more than just biological organisms as we understand it. Deer move among and are part of a pantheon of living spiritual beings. Every deer, including this one that now looks over its back out toward the sprawl of the ocean behind it, now leans back down and begins to feed again. Every deer has a watchful, sensitive, powerful spirit. And the hunter who takes a deer then offers prayers and offerings to that spirit and many tribes around north america deer are honored by elaborate beautiful rituals dances ceremonies for example the yaqui indians who live today in arizona and in northern desert country of mexico they hunt deer on the shimmering cactus flats on the dry bedrock hills of that country in Yaki ceremonies, there's a single dancer, perhaps the most important, the paramount dancer among them all, who wears a headdress made from a deer's head. That would be a white-tailed deer from down there in those deserts, with quite small antlers. It's uncanny and gorgeous to watch. He moves exactly like a tense, alert deer as he dances. Yaki people say that the spirit of the deer enters that dancer. And so the dancer becomes both a person and a deer. Well, in Yaki tradition, that dancer may be called Saila Maso. That means little brother deer. There are songs for the deer dance, which are considered in Yaki tradition to be the deer's voice coming through the human singers. For Yaki people, the deer embodies the beauty of the surrounding desert world and the richness of the environment that has for so long provided food for Yaqui people. Oh my gosh, now I understand why our deer kept looking up toward the forest. Another deer has walked out and it's also another buck deer with even bigger antlers. What a surprise to see these two large buck deer. Another tribe down in the southwest deserts, the Navajo people who live in New Mexico. They speak an Athabascan language quite closely related to the native languages of interior Alaska. Navajo people also follow a rich and beautiful religious tradition of sacred stories, poetry, and chants, and one of those traditions is called the deer hunting way. In a book called The Navajo Hunter Tradition, an elder named Klaus Chisani tells an ancient story The sacred deer people in that story explain why hunters must always respect their kind, must always respect the deer. And here from that story by Klaus Chisani is what the deer people say. Everything of which we are made, such as our skin, meat, bones, is to be used. Anything that we hold on to, such as the earth from the four sacred mountains, the rainbow, the jewels, the corn, all the plants we eat will be in us. Our bodies contain all these, and because of this we are very useful. The usefulness of the deer is the foundation which has been laid. It serves as an example for other things. This is what is meant when we say the deer are first in all things. We are in the gods who are mentioned, in the mountains, in the rainbows, in the roots of sunlight, in the lightnings. Also, we are in the plants. All livestock lives because of the deer. That is what keeps the animals moist, breathing, walking about, and altogether alive. And then the sacred deer people conclude this passage by saying, and animals are our food. They are our thoughts. That passage has resonated deeply for me as a hunter of deer. And again, as a person whose body is shaped by eating deer, I think that these eyes that watch the deer are also made from the deer's eyes. Tlingit people who live along the coast of southeastern Alaska have an elegant and I think inspiring deer tradition. The deer in their language is called goakan, and it is the embodiment of peace. An honored person who's designated as a peacemaker to settle disputes within the tribe is called goakan, the deer. Tlingit elder Pauline Duncan explained traditional ways of treating the deer that were published by the Alaska Native Knowledge Network. And if I may, I would just like to pass along a couple of things that she said. Always speak respectfully about deer. Don't joke about them. Don't brag about your hunting. Never waste any part of a deer. Share the venison with others. That can help with your hunting success, according to Tlingit tradition. The deer, it's said, offer themselves to hunters who treat them with respect. Oh, I see the deer now, just to my left, looking straight at me. Oh gosh, this deer is really close. Still standing under a spruce tree and just looking out. Now, I'll be a little bit surprised if this deer comes out because I'm standing here so close to where it is. Well, we'll wait and see. Well, the European colonists who came across the Atlantic to this continent brought with them a totally different different viewpoint on deer and on the entire natural world. First, those settlers were astounded by the tremendous abundance of deer, the great bison herds, the thronging waterfall, all the other wildlife. Imagine it had been hunted for so long, yet there was such abundance here. They were also amazed by the spectacular unaltered beauty of the North American continent. They were hardly able to comprehend the richness and the pristine qualities of the American land. So different was it from their other homeland in Europe. And so they called it a wilderness, as if no one had ever lived in this place. Those colonists and the ones who came after them launched into an era of intense, unrestrained exploitation of the American resources. They cut down vast areas of forest, clearing land for farms, cutting for lumber, for firewood. There was unregulated year-round hunting at that time for subsistence and for the market, for the commercial markets. Venison was sold in stores, in restaurants. The deer hides were used for leather and for making clothing, other objects. Deer hides, interestingly, were a medium of exchange on the American frontier. That's where the expression one buck comes from, one buckskin. So deer hides were used like money. Our deer now coming along, cautiously, but also a bit casually. This is a fairly small deer. Oh, stop, suddenly looks at me, ears up, ears laid back, walking now across this same little stream that I'm standing in. Luckily, I'm straight downwind from her, so she's not gonna get my scent. The peak of that commercial and subsistence hunting for wildlife in America came between 1850 and 1900. Wildlife historians have called that era the period of greatest hunting pressure on wildlife ever. For example, six tons of venison were shipped from one little town, Litchfield, Minnesota, to Boston just in the month of December, 1882. Our doe is now walking in that wonderful kind of staccato rhythm, pumping her head, high-stepping straight toward the other two deer. They're both standing on full alert, looking at her, not looking at me, but a bit of, attention now as she turns, looks at me now, drops her head and feeds. Now I've got all three deer fairly close together just over here. Biologists estimate that in America, before Europeans arrived, there was a population of 15 to 25 million deer. By 1880, that population had dwindled to just 500,000 and some experts of the time predicted that white-tailed deer were going to become extinct Then, by the early 20th century, some prominent Americans began to speak out against the loss of forest and the extreme overharvest of wildlife. This gave rise to our modern era and idea of conservation. It was led originally by hunters and fishermen, like the Outdoor Magazine publisher who was named George Bird Grinnell, a man who reached a very wide audience in America. Most importantly, however, it was Theodore Roosevelt, the Republican president of the United States from 1900 to 1909, who really spearheaded the American conservation movement. A whole community of conservationists, most of them prominent people in the eastern US, started to set up private game preserves where wildlife populations they hoped would begin to recover. And then out of that came the idea of national public lands, like wildlife refuges, national parks, places where they could keep areas of land both protected and open to everyone. During his presidency, Theodore Roosevelt added millions of acres to the National Forest System. He established five national parks and 17 national monuments. He created the National Wildlife Refuge System to protect habitat, to increase wildlife populations, and to assure that there would always be public access for hunting and fishing. There were also at that time stricter regulations on hunting and fishing. Some of the states, in fact, closed all hunting for deer for quite a while. Others had very short seasons, and almost everywhere, hunters were only allowed to take bucks. In any case, by the year 1900, deer were literally gone from many parts of the eastern United States. and states like Virginia transplanted deer were brought in from places like the Midwest, places that still had some deer left. Over 4,000 deer were transplanted to Virginia beginning in 1926. Now, here's something interesting. Today, there are about 900,000 white-tailed deer in the state of Virginia, where the deer was once completely gone. The annual hunting take in Virginia was less than 800 deer in the mid-1920s. Today, it's about 200,000 white-tails every year. Well, those kinds of figures reflect the fact that deer have an absolutely amazing ability to multiply. A lot of research has been done on deer in a place called the George Reserve. It's a one and a half square mile research area in the state of Michigan, surrounded by a very tall deer-proof fence. No deer can get in, no deer can get out. Listen to this. White tails inside that enclosure were reduced to 10 in number. In six years, How many do you think there were in there? 212. That's quite an illustration of the incredible reproductive fluency of deer. A wild deer population can double every two years, despite road kills, four-legged predators, and regulated hunting. There are now about 30 million deer in the United States. We've come all the way back to the number that existed in this country before Europeans arrived. 75% of the states today report that they got problems with deer. There are so many deer, they've moved into the suburbs, they're living in people's yards, they're living even in densely settled urban areas, munching on people's gardens and shrubbery, carrying a very serious illness called Lyme disease. About a million deer are killed on the roads of America every year by cars and trucks. Those accidents on the highways cause about 200 human deaths and 29,000 injuries every year. Incidentally, Compare that to about 150 accidental deaths by hunting. In other words, accidents with deer are causing more human deaths than hunting does every year in America today. Well, there are no suburban deer problems in Alaska, but black-tailed deer, in fact, are often seen in yards and around the edges of towns, especially in southeast Alaska. Black-tails are also spreading north. They're starting to show up, for example, in Anchorage. We have an interesting thing going on now. Our two buck deer... One of them is coming over, walking very directly up to our doe. They're only about 10 feet apart. He stops, looks at her, looks at me. We're kind of at the tail end of the rutting season, the mating season for deer, and I wonder if he's kind of taking a look to see if she might be interested in a little romance. Oops, looking straight at me. I was moving toward him. No, no, he's looking at her again now. She is undoubtedly a lot more interesting than I am. down there in the lower 48 states those abundant deer are causing other kinds of problems as well for example in parks and nature preserves especially in the eastern states and in the midwest deer are eating tree saplings they're destroying shrubs and small plants so that nothing grows on the forest floor no young trees are surviving to grow into older trees this is causing declines sometimes very serious declines of ground nesting birds small mammals reptiles amphibians all because this one large species is so abundant. All over America today, people are debating ways to solve these deer problems. The usual ideas they talk about include, leave the deer alone, let nature take its course. This means severe damage to wild habitats, it means economic losses to farmers, it means those car accidents and other problems still going on, and it eventually will lead to a mass starvation of deer. So the Let Nature Take Its Course doesn't have a whole lot of cachet, at least among biologists. How about trapping deer and releasing them somewhere else? A very expensive process, usually several hundred dollars per deer. They also have very poor survival. 25% to 85% of deer that are trapped and relocated die from the shock of being handled that way. There's no vacant habitats in any case where you can release those deported deer. Every place has already got more deer than it can possibly handle. And if you do trap deer and move them somewhere else, the population where you took those deer out will quickly bounce back with newborn deer every year. So it's an endless process. What about birth control? Always favored by a majority of people who are surveyed about deer problems. Big hope for the future, perhaps. It can be done today, but it's extremely expensive. Generally, about a $1,000 or more per deer. And it's basically unworkable because every doe in the population has to be treated. And where you do have those now infertile deer, more deer just keep filtering in from the surrounding countryside. What about reestablishing the main predators on deer? Those would be wolves and mountain lions, a widely supported idea but having enough of those kinds of predators to control deer populations in the farmlands and ranchlands and suburbs of America is really a complete pipe dream Culling of overabundant deer by professional sharpshooters is now done in lots of neighborhoods and preserves around the lower 48 states. They have very few shooters. They work from elevated stands, so they're shooting down. It's safe. It's effective. Still costs several hundred dollars per deer, and need I say, it's controversial. A lot of people have an impassioned objection to that idea. Then there's public hunting in those fairly densely settled areas. It's by far the most effective and cheapest approach to controlling deer populations. Often the hunters are required to take only the does, which is the only way you can really control deer numbers. It can be completely safe when it's strictly regulated. For example, I talked to a biologist on Long Island in New York who told me they'd had deer hunting in fairly heavily populated areas there for many decades. Only one accident ever recorded. That was a hunter who managed somehow to wound himself. Well, our deer here, what a different world, placidly munching away at kelp. Our doe has moved away from the buck who had kind of moved into her territory. Oops, she hears my feet in the stream and makes her a little bit nervous, but back to her feeding again on the kelp. Perhaps the most serious problems with abundant deer are in the American farmlands. And this is something that affects every one of us. Let me explain. Farms are dream habitat for deer. Many of the crops we eat are great food also for deer. For example, in an Iowa study, corn, soybeans, and alfalfa comprised 80% of the diet of the deer in that area. Deer are extremely destructive to farm crops. They damage lots of the foods that you and I buy at the grocery store. Corn, wheat, beans, lettuce, broccoli, pumpkins, peanuts, apples, strawberries, almost anything you can think of, almost anything you can find on the shelves. I talked to a farmer in the state of Wisconsin who was in an area where there were lots and lots of deer and he told me that although he wasn't a deer hunter, he said without hunting He figured he'd be driven out of the farming business within three to five years by the very rapid increase in deer numbers and the depredations they would make on his crops. I talked to a leading deer biologist in the state of Wisconsin about that, and he agreed. He said the entire agricultural economy of the state of Wisconsin would likely cease to exist within three to five years if there were no hunting for deer. My goodness, when that deer looks at me, it must see the blinking of my eyes. Oh, and here comes another deer out onto the beach. So we've got a good crowd. One of our deer is standing up on top of a driftwood log and reaching up, eating something in the spruce boughs. Now, I doubt that it's eating spruce needles. It may be, that's not a very healthy food for deer, but there may be nutritious lichens hanging from the branch where that deer is feeding right now. Well, watching these deer, I'm reminded of how much they enrich our lives. For many of us, they also feed our bodies, especially here in Alaska. They elevate our souls, and at the same time, they totally elude our understanding, and they please us with their mystery. Near this very same place where I'm keeping company with these deer right now, I was walking along with my little border collie, Kita, and I had another encounter with a black-tailed doe, and she had with her a half-grown fawn. I very slowly approached, and the doe kept a little bit of a distance from me. She was kind of nervous about me, but that naive fawn let me come very close. Oh goodness, one of our two bucks is now coming over to check out this doe, and he's walking right past me. I've been kind of admitted into the deer's world here today, well i had this encounter with a blacktail doe and her half grown fawn and i got very close to that fawn and here's what i wrote about the experience in a book called heart and blood living with deer in america The pale tips of his ears are no higher than my waist. He looks up into my face and seems all eyes, black and wet and shining eyes, eyes filled with sunlight and snow, dark rocks and shimmering water, eyes like the clear, limitless dome of a midnight sky, eyes that take my image into the fawn and spin me through the networks of his mind, as my own eyes have brought the fawn inside me. At the island's edge, in the glare of winter sun, amid the sounds of surging waters, with the breeze eddying between us, the fawn and I share a moment of pure bewilderment. After a few minutes, the little deer straightens and turns, crosses deliberately in front of me, and circles to my side, keeping the same distance. I could now reach out to touch him, but have no inclination to do so, and feel sure he'd startle if I tried. Slowly now. He moves around behind me, and there he collides with the bitter, drifting pall of my scent. Almost involuntarily, he winces back. He shoves his muzzle into the scent once more, like someone who tastes a sizzling pepper twice to affirm a sensation that barely seems possible. He recoils, turns end for end, follows his earlier tracks around to my front side, and pauses to stare at me like a deceived child. Then he struts away, flagging the bright underside of his tail, a perfect miniature of an adult deer making a frightened but honorable retreat. Oddly, when the fawn reaches his mother's side, he relaxes and bends down to pick at the kelp. But the watchful doe has taken on the fear he seems to have forgotten, although she acts as if it had nothing to do with me. Her body stiffens, her ears shift one way and the other, then she turns and leads him up the beach across the snow-covered driftwood into the tangled shroud of forest. I wait a moment to be sure they've gone, then signal for my dog, Kita. She dashes up, snuffles the fresh-tracked snow, wags her tail, nuzzles my hand, fidgets and rubs against my side, looks bright-eyed into my face, then stares toward the place where the deer vanished, begging me to follow. I kneel down and give her a hug, whispering thanks in her ear. My body is filled with energy and elation. I feel joy and gratitude for this winter day, this wild country, this blessed companionship of animals. And I am feeling that same joy and gratitude right now on this winter Alaskan coast. For Encounters, I am Richard Nelson. I want to thank you so much for your good company. See you next time. Encounters is a production of Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. The writer, host, and executive producer is Richard Nelson. It's edited and produced by Lisa Bush with special consulting from Ken Fate. Theme music by Outback. Funding for Encounters is provided by Martha Wyckoff, Jerry Tone, the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, Robert Osborne, the Alaska Conservation Foundation, John Norris, Susan Cohen, Gerald Lorraine, Philip James, and the Scott A. Nathan Charitable Trust. For information on purchasing CD copies of this program, visit kcaw.org.